0: This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro podcast.
1: So here on Pursuing Justice, we aim to spotlight the different ways that lawyers can bring their time and their legal talent to volunteer work. And sometimes that means bringing your special expertise in an area of law like the airplane insurance expert in our very first episode. But other times that means bringing your law license and your willingness to learn something new, like the bad paper issues in our episode on helping veterans. Today's episode drills down on a different way of bringing your legal talent to your volunteer work by joining a nonprofit board of directors.
2: I always say my clients rise like the phoenix. They should be knocked down and battered by some of the tragedies they've encountered, but instead they rise up and do good. And if you sit on that board, you're going to help that organization rise and you're going to be helping so many other people. The multiplier effect is incredible.
1: Welcome to Pursuing Justice The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Before I joined a nonprofit board, I had a lot of questions like, would I have to give legal advice Did I even know enough to be helpful? Could I make sense of the financials? I remember the words fiduciary duty from the bar exam, but what do they actually mean for a board member? I also believed that if I didn't have a lot of money to donate... No one would actually want me on their board. And also, I genuinely thought that if I wanted to be on a board, I'd have to wait around for someone to ask me first, like an Oscar nomination or a secret society. Eventually, someone did ask me to be on their board. And because I liked the organization's mission and because, who are we kidding, I thought this was my one chance to join a secret society, I said Yes. And I didn't get answers to any of my questions first. I wish, I wish that I had access to today's guests back then. I would have made smarter choices and I would have been a better board member. So let's meet the folks who are going to be answering all the questions that I was previously too afraid to ask. First, we're talking with Rafi Stern, staff attorney at Lawyers Alliance for New York.
3: Hi, I'm Rafi Stern. I work in the Economic Opportunity Program area in the five boroughs of New York City. And so I also do a lot of in-house work for nonprofits and also work with our pro bono partners at law firms.
1: And we're talking with Judy Siegel, senior staff attorney at Pro Bono Partnership, an organization that was inspired by Lawyers Alliance and serves counties which are just outside of New York City.
2: I'm Judy Siegel. We support over a thousand nonprofits in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And as a senior staff attorney, I both provide direct legal services and help supervise the volunteers that work on All Our Clients Matters.
1: Judy and Rafi are lawyers who directly provide legal services, legal information, and support for nonprofits. But they also facilitate pro bono work for nonprofits by lawyers from firms and in-house legal departments. Judy, can you talk a little bit more about the work of Pro Bono
2: Partnership? Expand on what you do. I would love to. So nonprofits are businesses like any other business. They just have an entire additional regulatory overlay. And we help our nonprofits. And we do it by having lawyers like me in-house, do the legal work, and we partner with volunteer lawyers, those who work in law firms and those who work in in-house legal departments, and we place our volunteers with projects that are in their areas of expertise. So my mother would tell you, I'm a legal matchmaker. I would tell you, I get to see the best in everybody every day, and we help our nonprofits help our communities.
1: So I think you'll agree with me, Rafi and Judy know a lot about nonprofits. Which is why PLI asked them to be the faculty chairs for the program about serving on a nonprofit board. That program focuses on the law and ethics of nonprofit board service, and I highly recommend it for CLE. But this conversation is about the human side. We talk more about what it feels like to be a lawyer on a board, about the particular perspective lawyers can bring to board service. And we get some honest answers to those little questions that we might be nervous to admit we don't already know the answers to about board service. Let's get the conversation started. I think a lot of times when people hear nonprofit, especially if they're thinking about boards and nonprofits, they think, The Red Cross or, you know, Partners in Health has been in the news a lot because of the um, passing of Paul Farmer. But I think that the landscape of nonprofits is much broader and deeper than that. And I'm wondering if one of you could educate us.
3: There is a huge range. Lawyers Alliance and I think Pro Bono Partnership also exists to serve nonprofits that are generally on the smaller side because they can't afford legal representation. Right. You know, there are massive organizations like the United Way and the Red Cross that are obviously doing great work. But I think for the most part, have one or more lawyers on their staff at Lawyers Alliance. The vast majority of our clients are much smaller nonprofits that may have anywhere from one or one part time employee or even no employees all the way up to in the low hundreds or something like that in terms of number of employees. We do get to see a huge range of organizations that are just really small grassroots organizations working in local communities to organizations that, at least for us, are on the bigger side and serve all five boroughs of New York or even serve some national programs. So I think for people who are interested maybe in board service, there is an incredible diversity in the types of communities that you'd be serving as a board member.
2: And I would just want to add to that that our clients span the gamut of all different kinds of services they provide. We have clients that address food insecurity. We have clients actually that some of them are larger and address affordable housing issues. But we have clients that address animal welfare, the arts. We have groups that teach tennis to underprivileged kids as a way to teach teamwork and leadership and anti-bullying. We have clients that address cancer support. One of my favorite clients helps a camp for children who are coping with the loss of a sibling or a parent. It was small. It was grassroots started by somebody who experienced their own loss that way. And rather than crumple up in a ball, did what we see all the time. I always say my clients rise like the phoenix. I mean, they should be knocked down and battered by some of the tragedies they've encountered, but instead they rise up and do good. And if you sit on that board You're going to help that organization rise and you're going to be helping so many other people. The multiplier effect is incredible.
1: Even I was taken aback at the breadth of nonprofit organizations and had a bit of a hard time envisioning a nonprofit with no employees at all. I mean, I spent most of my career at a nonprofit with 150 people on staff and it didn't feel that big to me honestly didn't completely understand the role of a nonprofit board separate from the task of doing the nonprofit work when there are no staff. So I laid out that question to Rafi. If I volunteer to be on the board of an all-volunteer nonprofit, am I really also volunteering to do the actual substantive work of the organization?
3: In all-volunteer organizations, usually the board has substantial overlap with the people who are doing the work. So take maybe a community gardening group, right? The board members are often people who are doing that community gardening, but they may have created the, the corporate entity because they're concerned about liability. There are tools that they're using and things like that, and they want to have sort of a corporate form to protect them. Some groups don't want uh, to incorporate and In that case, they can just have whatever governance structure they want. It can just be people showing up in a park. But once you formalize as an entity, then you have to follow the law.
1: I guess it goes back to what you said, Judy, which is that a nonprofit is a business like any other business. So you have to act like a business.
2: Exactly. And at Pro Bono Partnership and Lawyers Alliance, we try to take some of that business burden off the shoulders of our nonprofits.
1: So I want you to imagine you run into Judy in an elevator. You find out what she does and you say, I've done pro bono for some local nonprofits. I really enjoyed it. I've been asked to join the board, but I wonder if that's the best use of my time. What
2: would be the reasons to say yes? Because you can use your skills to better a board to help the community. So it's the morally right thing to do. And also, it is going to help you develop your career in ways you could probably not otherwise anticipate. You're going to take on leadership roles, you're going to develop your skill set, you're going to lead projects, and you're going to have access to people who you would never be able to pick up the phone and call directly unless you sat on the board with them. It's great for your career, it's great for your community, and honestly, it's really good for your soul. Judy is really persuasive
1: and clearly feels strongly about this. But you're still not sure. The board would be a long-term commitment, several years at least. Luckily, Rafe is on that elevator too, and Judy asked him if he has any other thoughts for you.
3: I will add two things to that. The first is, you know, I think sometimes as a lawyer in a paid or a nonprofit practice, you have clients that are coming and going, right? So you work on something for a month or three months and then you move on. One benefit of being on a board is that you can really be part of building an organization and building something for the long term. If you're a lawyer and you serve on the board, you get to be the client. It's a different perspective. You get to be the one receiving legal advice and implementing the business advice or the business advice for the organization. So uh, I think it's a different role, and it can be really interesting from that perspective.
1: Something you just said, Rafi, actually put a light bulb in my head, which is that a lot of people who are either government lawyers or uh, nonprofit lawyers often feel like they can't do pro bono. And so I have talked to a lot of folks. And I was certainly like that. I was like, I'm a free legal aid lawyer. Why do I need to also volunteer? But I did end up joining a board because that was something that I didn't have to think about my whether my agency was OK with it or whether I had malpractice insurance for it. And the meetings were all at night. As opposed to a lot of pro bono opportunities as a trial lawyer, it would, you know, take you into court away from your regular clients. But I hadn't really thought about that as a solution to volunteering your skills for nonprofit and government lawyers until you just said that, Rafi.
2: And also, Lish, can I just point out, like when you just mentioned volunteer your skills. So I just really want to make clear when you volunteer with either of our organizations, you're volunteering in your sphere of expertise. When you sit on a board, you don't have to sit in your role as an attorney. There are lots of ways you add value to that board based on your knowledge as an attorney, but not in the role of an attorney. I think that's really important that we differentiate that and also maybe put to bed the fear that possibly lawyers have when they come to serve on a board is, oh, my God, I'm going to have to be a lawyer. I don't know anything about employment law or intellectual property law, anything. I I don't want to be a lawyer on this board. And what I would say to anyone out there that has that fear is great. Glad you're thinking about that. But you bring a skill set to a board that no one else can really bring. Because I think we're all lawyers. We could all admit law school doesn't make you a subject matter expert in everything or necessarily anything. But it does make you really good at critical thinking and issue spotting. And that is so important as a board member. And I can give you just a couple of examples from my clients this week. (laughs) So you're sitting on a board, you're a lawyer. Let's say you're a mergers and acquisition lawyer. And all of a sudden you've developed this great new website and you as a lawyer take a look at this great new website and a light bulb is going to go off for you that, wow, that's a fantastic picture. But it's not ours. We're going to need some kind of IP licensing agreement. I'm not saying, oh, mergers and acquisition lawyer do the IP licensing agreement. I'm saying kudos to you board member with this ability to issue spot that you can at least say, hey, we have an issue here. Let's get it addressed. And on a board, the ability to think critically and flag issues, not solve the issues, but flag them is a huge benefit to any board. I'm so glad that Judy clarified that because it is such
1: a common misperception about lawyers generally that we are a walking legal database just waiting to give the answers. When Judy says the skill lawyers bring is the ability to flag issues, that feels like something I know how to do. But beyond being the person to say, we might have a problem here, what other benefits can a person with legal training bring to a board?
3: Your job as a board member is to exercise your sort of best business judgment. I've had a lot of people come to me and ask me, what is the law on this question? And oftentimes the answer is the not-for-profit corporation law doesn't address this issue. The law is you have to make the best decision you can in consultation with your other board members. And lawyers have to use all of the skills they've developed in terms of people skills, persuasive skills with other board members, and business reasoning to make the best decision on behalf of nonprofits. But it can be really an interesting challenge, I think, for lawyers in a different way.
2: And to Rafi's point, Lish, when he talked about using your talents as a lawyer, or your business judgment, lawyers are really good about removing emotion from discussions. So I think, and I know, know Rafi has spoken about this in the past, the ability of a lawyer to be a moderator and to sort of step out and see things more objectively, because we've been trained not to put our own emotion or our client's emotion into negotiations or into decision making is also a huge skill and a huge benefit you bring to any board. Rafi has served in that role before. I mean, I think he can, you know, tell us more about that. Yeah, Rafi, I would
1: love to hear if you have any stories, whether it was a thing that you did as a um, lawyer to the board or to the nonprofit or as a board member. I think an example of bringing the legal training and talents to the table that's different from giving legal advice.
3: Sure. So... An example that comes to mind is a community organization that I worked with. And the issue was that there were one or two board members who were really beloved community figures, but had not been engaged with the board in a legal sense and in a governance sense for a variety of reasons. One of them was they didn't have an email address. They just really preferred to operate by phone. And in the pandemic, obviously, that's been very challenging. So... What uh, we did at Lawyers Alliance and what I did was join the organization at one of their board meetings and do a sort of, I would say, modified governance presentation to make the board members aware of their legal and non-legal obligations as board members. And I think, last I checked at least, that had been really effective in getting the board on the same page as to what they all needed to do making them more collaborative, and just making them aware, you do have fiduciary duties as a board member, right? You have a legal obligation to do certain things that are in the best interest of the organization, and it allowed the organization really to move forward as a more cohesive unit.
1: Okay. The list of skills a lawyer can bring to a board now includes an ability to issue spot where legal advice might be needed, Critical thinking about questions before the board, persuasive advocacy for best business judgment, and effective presentations to educate board members on their duties. And now I'm remembering my own experience on a board. I'm remembering really earnest, engaged fellow board members who were willing to debate an issue as long as it took to get a consensus— but who also forgot that sometimes debate wasn't necessary. Sometimes there was a bylaw that gave us a really clear direction. My training as a lawyer taught me to ask first, is there a rule? What does it say? Does that answer the question? I didn't think of my instinct to look at the rule before getting into a long discussion as quote, lawyering, but Judy and Rafe are helping me see my lawyer skills in a different way. And I thought of one other lawyer skill we hadn't touched on yet. I'm curious if you all have stories or insight about the question of conflicts of interest. I know that the conflicts of interest questions for a nonprofit and for the board are not the same as the conflict of interest questions for attorneys, but I do wonder what your thoughts are on how attorneys on boards can bring that spidey sense about conflicts to the table.
3: Rafi? Sure, so on the conflict of interest point, I think lawyers, you don't realize it, but you do develop an ability to have sort of a smell test, right? If other board members start talking about something that just doesn't seem right to you. The not-for-profit corporations law and the IRS rules have fairly detailed roadmaps for dealing with conflicts of interest, but you don't really need to be aware of the all of the intricacies of that to be uh, able to flag a potential conflict of interest or something that just doesn't sound right. And at the very least, bring it to an organization like Lawyers Alliance or Pro Bono Partnership to find out if your intuition is accurate.
2: Right. I 100 percent agree with what Ravi is saying. And this is part of the role of the lawyer who sits on the board in a non-lawyer role. But I also think if you're sitting at a board, you're not going to be the one who hesitates to raise the issue where somebody else may also even sense the issue. But they may be a little more trepidatious about lighting that fire or sort of being the naysayer in the back of the room. Lawyers tend to not care about that. It's one of our strengths, I think.
1: Let's dig into this a little bit, because I do think I want to lift up what you're saying, Judy, about not being afraid to raise the question. But I also think it's tricky if you're used to being in a relationship where you're somebody's lawyer. So by definition, they're supposed to want your advice. Sometimes they think they do, but they really don't. But by definition, they're supposed to want your advice and you're supposed to give it. But a board is more, on paper, an egalitarian setting where everybody on the board has the same size vote. And what do you think about the pros and cons of being the person who says, I can't answer this question, but I
2: see a problem and I don't want us to move forward until we address this problem. I think that's 100% your role. I think the person who's the naysayer is probably my most important board member. And I tell my board to come to me and say proudly, we've never had anyone vote no on anything. That causes my left eye to twitch because I know that they're not fulfilling their fiduciary duties because I know they haven't engaged in really robust conversation. When we speak to a board member, when we speak to your board on the whole, when we do our workshops... We're going to tell you part of fiduciary duty of care is asking the question, debating the topic and coming to a reasoned decision based on all the information and all the information means questions must be asked.
3: And I'll just add, this is uh, maybe a preview of the actual PLI presentation that Judy and I are going to do. But being a lawyer on a board can be complicated. I have many lawyers that I know who serve on boards who get asked legal questions by the board. The board just turns to them and says, you're the lawyer, you know the answer. You know, and in certain circumstances, a lawyer can obviously give their opinion, but you also have to kind of be careful to segregate your role as a board member from your role as what would be outside counsel to the nonprofits. We'll certainly talk about this a lot more in the ethics portion of the presentation, but that's a little preview, I guess.
2: And as you'll see at the presentation, totally surmountable. So that's another reason you should come to the presentation so you can learn how to make it work. Can you think of any examples
1: of the conflict of interest that might come up in a board? Have you what have you seen in the past?
3: I can think of an example where a board member might say, for example, I have a family member who has been volunteering in this community for a long time, has been working in the community and really knows the uh, organization, knows our work and things like that. They might want that family member to be compensated for their work by the organization. They might say it's right in our target area. And that might be okay if the family member is extremely qualified, if they're the best candidate to be hired. But once somebody is hiring a family member, that should set off all kinds of alarm bells that the board really has to be on top of this, vetting the candidate and making sure they're going through the conflict of interest clearing process. So that's an example where... There might not be something malicious at all in trying to hire the best qualified person to serve the community, but uh, it's the board's role to make sure there's not an actual uh, conflict of interest or even really the appearance of a conflict of interest.
1: And that's a good point, right? That, That I think sometimes that is a thing I've ended up explaining to people is that the appearance of a problem matters as much as whether there's a real problem.
2: I just also want to point out for lawyers considering serving on boards. You need to be running this by your law firm, because if you've come to know this organization because your law firm is providing legal services to them, and then you're going to sit on this board and maybe continue on in that legal role, are you sending the business to your firm? Is there some kind of benefit? Do you need to? Well, you totally should be disclosing that to your law firm and getting their approval. And they may not care, but there is a potential conflict of interest that way also that just you have to be aware of it and you have to work through it. There may not be anything wrong with what you're doing, but nonprofits get judged in the court of public opinion all the time, first thing to remember. But then it's balanced out by the fact that nonprofits run on related party transactions. Let's be real. A large part of the reason small nonprofits can survive is because they get the benefit of a transaction because of a board member or a related party. And again, document it, establish it in the best interest of the nonprofit, and move forward. But as a board, as a lawyer who's on a board, you need to be aware of those and actually listen to the spidey senses going off.
1: And, and I think everything you both are saying is right on point. I, th- I think it's a, tricky, it's a tricky question. It's worth surmounting the issue. But I think if you're sitting on a board and the person who's also on the board with you is a graphic designer and somebody says, wait, we're going to have a fundraiser. Can you design the invitation? And the graphic designer is probably going to say yes, and that's easy for them to do. And then there's going to be a question that comes up about using a photo, and they'll say, lawyer, can you answer the question whether we can legally use this photo or not? And you're going to say, eh, I I'm not. I'm not sure that's my role, ethics questions, whatever. I'm uncomfortable. Think that can feel weird. Or alternatively, what I actually think is more common is let's say you are an intellectual property lawyer, it is your field. You get asked a question like that on the board, and the instinct is, I know the answer, I'm going to answer it. And you may have just walked into offering legal advice. So I'm describing a complexity, I think, of our particular profession and then what it means to sit on a board. Do you have any thoughts about what lawyers can do to prepare themselves and to prepare their boards to
2: understand how they're going to participate? I think the short answer is, and we'll be talking more about this at the PLI class in July, is you need to make very clear when you're speaking, whether you're speaking in your capacity as an attorney or as a board member. It's important to say at the beginning of the meeting anything and make sure it's reflected in the minutes. Anything I say here now is in my capacity as a board member. I'm not acting as an attorney. If we're in the situation that you described, Lish, where you are an IP attorney and this IP issue comes up, that is the perfect example of why you need to be talking to your own law firm and your own insurance carrier to make sure that your malpractice carrier is going to cover you if something goes wrong. But again, we'll be discussing some of these pitfalls and how to surmount them when you come to our PLI class.
1: That actually does raise a question that I think there's some I've heard people debate. If you are a lawyer on the board and they want to have you provide legal services, whether pro bono or for a fee, let's just keep it pro bono for the moment. They want you to provide legal services that are in your expertise and you are a board member. Are you allowed to do that? And is it a good idea?
3: The short answer is you're allowed to do that, provided that, of course, you're recusing yourself from decisions that are based on your own advice and and things like that. Whether it's a good idea, I think, goes back to the question of the appearance of impropriety again. If you're doing it pro bono, I think as long as it's set up appropriately and like Judy said, in terms of malpractice, it doesn't present the same issues as if you're being paid to represent the organization. In that instance... There's a principle, at least in New York law, that the organization should be looking for reasonable alternatives to em- employing sort of insiders. And so if you're an IP lawyer, there are plenty of other IP lawyers out there. So as if they're charging the same prices, the organization generally should be looking to a completely outside third party.
1: This comes up a lot in my work. I, I give technical assistance to uh, domestic violence shelters around the country. And when they get a subpoena they will call me and i always say i am going to i sound like a lawyer when i talk but it's very important you understand i'm not your lawyer and then i will say i think you need a lawyer to deal with this subpoena and they will say oh great there's a lawyer on our board and i usually get really uncomfortable at that moment because i think it's going to be so difficult for the lawyer on the board to manage the interest of the organization in how or whether you pursue this subpoena with Giving my client zealous representation and advice, I just think those two things are going to be too hard to navigate.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree with that, but I will say is a little push for pro bono partnership or lawyers' alliance. That is another way you can bring value to your nonprofit is by knowing about us and sending your nonprofit to either of our organizations, depending on where you're located. And there are other organizations like us across the country that provide some legal services. So one of the things you bring that's valuable to a nonprofit when you sit on their board is the ability to know the fact that just because someone is a real estate lawyer on your board doesn't mean they can possibly begin to give great advice on a sexual harassment claim. And also the knowledge of where to go to get that advice. Sometimes just knowing who you can pick up the phone and call and call one of your friends who works at another firm and say, hey, can you guys do this for us pro bono? Or can you do it for us at least at a reduced rate? Or it's this kind of problem. We need this kind of lawyer is a huge, valuable service that you can bring to that board. You don't have to be the lawyer to bring a lot of value as a lawyer.
1: I think you're exactly right. And that is what I do when they say, oh, we'll call the lawyer on our board. I say, that is a great idea because that's the best person to help you find a lawyer. Because they know who the lawyers are in the community and they'll help you figure out exactly what you just said, Judy, the kind of lawyer that you need to be looking for.
3: Yep. And I would just add that it's important for lawyers to have humility and understanding of their own limitations. So if it's something you're supremely confident in giving legal advice about, you might feel better about rendering legal advice to your own organization. But you don't want to be giving off the cuff advice about something you you're not that expert in.
2: And that comes back to what Rafi was saying earlier about when you're sitting at the board, some of it's just about training up your board so that the board understands roles, responsibilities, and who's equipped to fulfill those roles and responsibilities. And just explaining, just because I'm a lawyer doesn't mean I know everything. And feel free to tell me that sometimes too, right? I mean, to Rafi's point about humility, it goes a long way. Know what you know, but more importantly, know what you don't know. And don't be afraid to say that. There's no shame in being a lawyer who sits on a board and just saying, I'm out. I don't do this. Mm -hmm.
1: So I can see it now in a way that I haven't seen it before. My experience as a lawyer really can bring value to a nonprofit board. And I can bring that experience to my board service in a way that doesn't cross ethical lines. But we haven't addressed one of my very first points. For lawyers who are ready, willing, and able to sit on a board, do you have to wait for that secret society tap on the shoulder? Or is there something you can do to get your name out there or to get yourself on the board that most interests you? So, you guys are really persuasive about why people should sit on boards. How do you get on a board?
3: I think there are a few ways that you can do it. One that Judy mentioned, obviously, is if you're a lawyer and you have already represented an organization or even volunteered with an organization outside of your legal capacity, right? If you've done a park cleanup or anything kind of in your local community, worked at a food bank, if you support the organization's mission, I find most of our clients are always happy to bring on a lawyer as a board member. That's one kind of organic way to do it. There are also uh, a lot of other resources um, out there, organizations that are specifically designed to find board members, potential board members, and connect them to nonprofit organizations. Some of them are national, a lot of them are local. So I I would definitely encourage people uh, just to seek those out in their community. And, you know, they have sort of matchmaking services where they'll be able to tell you which organizations are in the market, so to speak, for board members. And you can see if you can find an organization that matches your values and priorities.
2: And I would also say, you know, word of mouth also goes a long way. If you know somebody who's involved in an organization that you're interested in, pick up the phone and call that person. You know, old school still does work. You can send an email or a text or however else, if you're young, you're going to reach them by social media and just ask about it. But I would also say, and Rafi and I are going to speak about this in July. There are some questions you should be asking before you join a board. There are some documents you're going to want to look at. And I always counsel my boards. I would never put someone on a board who hasn't worked with us to not only make sure that they're going to do what they say they do, but that it's actually really the right fit. I mean, when Rafi said something about matchmaking, there is something to that word. Like we are talking about matching work style, commitment, time ability. Some boards want money. We could discuss that in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a whole other POI class, probably. But it's important to really make sure that it's the right fit, and it may be an organization that you want to support financially or volunteer with, but not a board that you would want to sit on. Again, no shame in that. The shame is in not doing your due diligence. But there are so many wonderful organizations. I promise you there is a nonprofit out there that is the perfect match for you. Can we talk about fundraising
1: for a minute? Because that actually kept me off boards for a long time. I was a nonprofit lawyer and I didn't have the capacity to write checks and I hate fundraising in all capacities. And so I perceived that if I joined a board, my job was to produce money. How true or untrue is that?
3: Yeah. So I'm I'm happy to take that first. I think like the variety of nonprofits I mentioned at the beginning, there is a variety of expectations for board members. Some boards definitely do have something like a give get policy where they ask or essentially require board members to ask for and or donate a certain amount of money. Other boards do not have those requirements, other nonprofits, right? There are a lot of organizations that would be happy to bring you on just to have your legal skills and just to have your your time and effort. I know for people who are younger, who might not have built up savings, there are sometimes junior boards where there is either a lesser expectation of giving or no expectations. So I think there's all kinds of permutations. I wouldn't let um, the fear of fundraising keep you from trying to serve on a board as a blanket rule, but it's always good to learn about what's expected, and certainly to maybe look at the bylaws of an organization before you sign up.
2: Right. It's all about doing your due diligence, financially, work style. How much time is the board going to require? Some boards meet quarterly. Some boards meet once a month. Are you going to have to sit on a committee? That's an additional workload. All good, but you need to understand what you're signing up for before you sign up for it. And you need to be honest in your discussions with the board before you agree to serve. It really has you have to do your due diligence and you have to make sure it's a right fit from both sides. But there is a board out there for you. I promise you, promise you that there is a board that is the right one for you. And as Rafi said, you know, when you work on a board, you get to see long lasting changes that you've helped implement that have lifetime generations of impact.
1: I feel like Rafi and Judy are offering up the secret sauce. To a successful experience on a nonprofit board. Know yourself, know what value you bring, know what your boundaries are, understand the organization, and find out what it expects of board members before you decide to join. Judy even had a great example of someone finding their fit on a board. So, we've talked a lot about doing your due diligence and the multiplier effect of being on the board and bringing your training and talents to it. I'm wondering, Judy, can you think of a story of sort of someone figuring out what is the right board for them and where they want to make an impact and being able to make an impact? 100 percent, Lish.
2: It actually came to fruition this past week, and it was a really good upper for me. It was a great lift for me. We had a volunteer who is an in-house counsel, and she had volunteered with us on one or two different projects. And I started to get to know her. And after one project where she was working with a nonprofit that built out a home for people who had gone through their initial rehab from drug and alcohol addiction, and this house now was literally a residence for people who didn't want to be out in the general population yet. They needed a little more support. And she shared with me that she was interested in volunteering with this organization because her own brother had died of opioid addiction. And it was something her family really related to. And it was, the project worked out well. And then I had another client that also addresses addiction issues and trying to combat addiction or prevent addiction in children. And her brother was younger when he had passed away. So I called her up and said, this client just called me. They need some work, contract work, which is really what she does. I said, are you interested in helping this organization? It was a love match. Everything they did spoke to her heart. The work she need, The work they needed was spot on with what she did. And she had said to me, I'd be happy to work with them again. And they did have a few more projects come up, and I kept connecting them. And then the nonprofit reached out to me and said, do you think she'd be interested in serving on her board? We're looking to expand. And I said, well, there's really no way to know unless you ask her. Call her up and ask her. So they did, and they just voted her on the board this past week. And I cannot tell you how personally happy she is. I mean, she posted it all over LinkedIn. It really lifted her heart to be able to do this. And the nonprofit is over the moon. So it was one of those great matchmaker moments. That's a phenomenal story.
1: With any luck, this episode has opened a door and it has shown you a whole new set of possibilities for volunteering as a lawyer. And maybe you are ready to take the next step. Put the word out there that you're interested, or start the conversation with that community organization you particularly respect. If you want to learn even more about the world of nonprofits, PLI has a whole curriculum of programs covering a pretty wide range, like serving on a board, basic accounting for nonprofits, governance issues, and lots more. We'll post a link to the PLI Pro Bono page with nonprofit programs in the show notes. But before you dig in on the details, for now, just spend a few minutes reflecting on this question. Who do I want to help and what is the best way for me to do that?
0: Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, The Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pynitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit PLI.eduslash pro bono.